Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. Well, good evening, guys. Um, I just really want to echo um, what you have heard. Whoa, that's echoing really bad. Um, I just want to echo what you guys have heard continually um, up on this stage from Jana and Adam, um, that this church really, truly does um, love college students, um, that we are so, so thankful that you're here with us tonight. Um, and uh, we're just excited to, to, to walk with you and, and to grow with you. And so if, if, if there's anything tonight that like, you need to talk about, um, that you need to discuss, like anybody that you see up here on this stage, anybody in the back would love to talk to you and connect with you. Um, so like Adam said, my name is Anthony. Um, my wife Sarah and I are, are members here at HCC and part of Campus Collective staff. Um, and Tuesday nights are one of my favorite nights of the week because uh, Campus Collective is so gospel-centered. Um, it's just every person that gets up here, every person that spends time on this ministry um, is so focused on the gospel and not putting on a show. Um, and so I hope tonight that your hearts are just ready to hear the gospel, um, because this passage that we're going to be in, Mark 12, if you have your Bibles, is soaked in it. Um, and so for the sake of, of authenticity, I, I have to be honest with you that coming up here tonight, um, just because I don't want you to think that like, people who, who get up on this stage and, and get to speak have attained some Christian level of teaching now, right? Like, uh, this week, like I, I just come up here and I need the gospel preached to myself. Um, I've just come just drained spiritually, mentally, emotionally. And this passage, I think, is so soaked in the gospel that if you'll just press in, like it'll, it'll change not only your week, but your life. Um, so if you will, uh, go ahead and just join me in prayer. We ask the Lord to work tonight. Father, um, Lord, we thank you so much for every person that you've brought here and sat in these seats. Uh, we thank you for your word that you revealed to us, uh, your mercy and your graciousness and, and how you've worked through Jesus and how we can be saved and, and come to know you, Lord. I pray that everybody uh, within the sound of my voice tonight, Lord, would be transformed by your word, that we would leave here on fire to go spread the gospel um, wherever we find ourselves. I pray that um, they wouldn't leave here uh, thinking that all of this tonight was just a really good show, Lord, but that they leave here tonight Jesus loving and embracing you. Uh, and so just please help us to understand this text. Help us to apply it. Uh, help me to, to speak clearly, Lord, and just overcome any deficiencies that I might have um, and just... Lord, we ask that you would crush any hindrance that is in anyone's heart tonight, causing them to not come to you. 
Um, So it's in your name, Jesus. Amen. So Mark chapter 12. So we've been working our way um, through a series in Mark that we've subtitled the, uh, should be up on the screen, The Relentless Life of Jesus Christ. And so the, the whole kind of crux of this series has been that Jesus from birth until end of his life was on this relentless drive towards the cross um, where, where he would pay the penalty for our sin and where he would rise again from the dead so that we could have relationship with God. So that's been the driving force of all of this. Uh, and so last week, Dustin um, in Mark 11 uh, showed us how Jesus rode into Jerusalem as this uh, triumphant king who was there uh, to uh, the, the final week before the mission on earth was accomplished. Um, and as he entered, he was, uh, he was overcome with zeal for the temple. Right? He saw the, the money changers and the kind of shady deals that were going in and preventing people from being able to come in and worship. And he was righteously angry over that. Um, and, and that kind of drew the attention of the religious leaders. And so they kind of challenged his authority, asked where he thought that he got this authority. Um, and Jesus kind of conversed and went back and forth with them. Um, and this week in chapter 12, we kind of find ourselves right in the middle of that conversation. It's really interesting that in the middle of this Passion Week, Mark kind of stops to show us this conversation. Um, so tonight there's going to be, there's, there's really three movements. There's, there's kind of a parable, like a, a story. There's um, a question And then there's another question. And then in between the questions, Jesus responds um, in some pretty profound ways. Uh, So let's just start uh, with verses 1 through 11. It says this, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So let's just pause right there and kind of unpack what's going on, right? It's, so the he there, we know that's Jesus. The them, he's continuing this conversation with the religious people, um, the, the leaders, the Jewish leaders who have come out to challenge his authority. Or what are you doing here? Um, and, he, and he uses something called a parable. And now it's really, really important that we understand um, Parables are not entirely allegorical, right? If you're taking an English class in college, everything's an allegory, right? Everything is a symbol. Everything represents something, right? But it's important that that in the parables we realize that usually Jesus is trying to make one, maybe two points that he's trying to drive home, right? So not every single thing is illustrative. And that's going to be really important to keep in our minds um, as we work through this. Okay, so he's, he's telling these stories, and he often does this to, to either, like, correct uh, a misunderstanding, um, to communicate a truth, um, or even to warn. And so he's kind of going to do all of those here. And so he starts out with this man that plants a vineyard and puts a fence around it, and digs a pit for the wine press, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. And so it's pretty safe to assume Jesus, the Son of God, this parable, all of his parables are kingdom-driven, so the man in this parable is probably referring, we can say with surety, to God. Um, this, this man that plants this vineyard, right? A, a vineyard would have been something that wealthy people would have been able to plant and grow grapes, uh, this wine press, so they produced wine from it. This isn't something that like, the 
average run-of-the-mill guy could produce and take care of on his own. And it says that he leased it to tenants and went into another country. Um, being college students, I'm sure you're all familiar with the, the role of a, of a tenant, right? Like most of you probably have to pay rent every month, right? Where, where you live does not really belong to you. you. You pay a fee to the landlord and they let you stay there. That's the idea Jesus is getting at in here, that there's a man who has, who has leased out this beautiful vineyard with a wine press and a tower, right? Things that might not necessarily click in our minds as being grand, but to this audience, they would have been. And something in the Jews' mind probably would have started going off and saying, I think he might be talking about us, right? Because if, if you're, a, if you're a, a solid Jew, you know tradition that the, the, part of the, the big part of the Jewish story is the Exodus story, right? Where God rescues the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt and then plants them in a land that the Bible says flows with milk and honey. So a land that they didn't work for. He puts them in houses they didn't build, gives them wells they didn't dig, crops they didn't grow. So bells are probably going off. But for us as a modern audience, we can probably even start going farther back than that, right? And they would have too. Think about creation, Genesis 1.1. What happens? You have God, extremely rich, the Alpha and Omega, the creator of the cosmos, creates the earth, and he plants a small, we don't have small, a garden, and he calls it Eden. And in that garden, he puts man And he allows man to work and steward and have dominion over that garden. Verse 2, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tents to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Verse 3, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so many others, some they beat and some they killed. So this vineyard owner wants what's his. He wants the fruit of the vineyard. He wants the wine that's being made in the wine press. And so he sends servant after servant, right, to come and collect. Like the vineyard owner wants what's due. But what do the what do the tenants do? Right? It says they took him, they took the servant, they beat him, they send him away empty-handed. Another comes, they beat him, they send him away empty-handed. They treat one of them shamefully. More bells are probably going off in the Jews' head at this time, right? Israel's history was just rife with persecution of, of prophets, of men of God, men whom God had spoken to and who had come and presented the law to the people and tried to guide and shepherd their hearts back to God, but they just repeatedly persecuted and killed prophet after prophet, right? History, we know Isaiah, the prophet, was probably sawn in half, Right? The prophet Zechariah was killed in the temple. The prophet Jeremiah was left in a pit for dead. So these religious leaders are probably realizing, oh, Jesus is talking about us right now. And that should be the same kind of posture that we take. Right? We're not those Jewish leaders, and it's really easy to disconnect from this story. But in the same sense, how often has the Father been patient with us? You think about this, right? After the first servant, he sends another servant. 
and then another servant, and then another servant. I don't know about you guys, but after the first servant, I probably would have just burned the place to the ground and said, forget it, right? But he sends one after the other, right? God is, Jesus is trying to communicate that God's been pursuing Israel this whole time. And we can branch out from that, and, and God has been pursuing each of us, right? Think about how, if you're here tonight and you're not in Christ, think about how you got to sit where you're sitting, right? That wasn't an accident. Think about that annoying friend that over and over and over begs you to come to Campus Collective or come to church with them. That's mercy. It's mercy that we're sitting here, right? It's mercy that the first time we rebelled against God, we didn't get hell forever. That's what Jesus wants these leaders to understand is that God has been so patient with people who reject him. In verse 6, he says, He had still one other son, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. So it's important, remember, to keep the parable kind of uh, thinking in mind, right? This is, if we know that this is God, so the son, Jesus, God, it's, this isn't just like a shot in the dark, right? God's not like, oh, I'll send Jesus down there and see how that goes, right? That's not what happens. We know from other texts, John 10, 48, that it was plan A all along for Jesus to come and lay his life down. What Jesus is, is trying to communicate is that even though they've rejected over and over and over these prophets and servants that have come, the Father was still willing to send them the Son the beloved son. And he says, they will respect my son. But verse seven, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him outside of the vineyard. Think about it for a second, right? You, you might think that human beings are kind of neutral blank canvases with just some bad here and there. But when you think about the crucifixion and you, you, you take this text for like what it really means, this is the most horrendous foreshadowing in history of what's going to happen to Jesus on the cross. Right? We don't need any more evidence of human depravity and brokenness and wickedness than the fact that this man claiming to be the Son of God, came and offered us a rescue and repentance. And what did mankind do? We nailed him on a tree. Right? So, so any, any understanding that mankind is, is naturally good and that, like, you know, people, a common atheistic argument would be like, well, if, if I just saw God in the flesh, right? Like, if he came and, and spoke to me, I would believe then. Probably not. You would probably crucify him like these men did. That's the wickedness of the human heart. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Verse 9. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus' warning here is solemn and clear. That to reject the Son, to reject Jesus, is to reject hope. 
It's to, it's to em, even just reject hope, but to embrace destruction. Right? Think about it logically. You're a tenant. Your landlord comes to you. You don't pay what's due. You get booted out. You don't get to live there anymore. It's the same thing. All of creation, all of history, all of time, everything belongs to Christ. And when you reject him, there's nothing left. He said, the stone that the builders rejected has become the, storm, the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting from Psalm 118. And it's this idea that Jesus was, right, on the surface, he was just a, a homeless criminal who hung out with a bunch of like, 12 really dumb, uneducated guys for a couple of years and then was crucified naked under the Roman government, right? There's nothing flashy and there's nothing sexy. There's nothing glamorous about any of that, right? But what they're saying is, is that that thing that seems so foolish that, that people laugh at and scoff at is the thing that all of history is heading towards. It's the cornerstone, right? It's the foundation of everything else. And to not build your life on that is to fall, 2 Peter 3.9 says this, illustrating the patience of the Lord, right? This isn't something that, that God is in heaven rubbing his hands together. Who can I, who can I crush? God is he's extending so much. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. So the fact is, is that tonight, if you're here, if you're still alive and breathing, it's not too late, right? We're not going to pull punches here at Campus Collective. We want you to leave here trusting in Christ. To reject the Son means to embrace destruction. All arguments go out the window when we look at the cross, when we, the argument of how can a good God send people to hell, right? That's another on a college campus, right? Well, if you look at the cross, all of those people, we have the chance in Christ. We have a whole campus out there that is waiting to hear this message. Here's Charles Spurgeon um, talking about these verses. He says, remember once more that if you do not hear the well-beloved Son of God, you have refused your last hope. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one else can be sent. Heaven itself contains no further message. If Christ is rejected, hope is rejected. I should like every person here to remember that there is no other gospel and no more sacrifice for sin. He goes on and says, I have heard talk of a larger hope than the gospel set before us. It is a fable with nothing in Scripture to warrant it. Rejecting Christ, you have rejected all. You have shut against yourself the one door of hope. Christ, who knows better than all pretenders, declares that he that believes not shall be damned. There remains nothing but damnation for those who do not believe in Jesus. That's harsh, but it's true. If you reject Christ, there's no other option. Or here's Jesus in John 3, 16 through 18. 
For God so loved the world, right? The most popular verse in the Bible, that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. The news of the gospel is that Jesus didn't come to condemn you. You did that to yourself willfully through your rebellion. We've all done it. But Jesus came to be crushed for you. Before Jesus comes back as that cornerstone and crushes his enemies, he's led outside the Senate and crushed for his enemies. So to reject him is to say, I don't want to be rescued. Moving on. Verse 12 Kind of a transition verse. It says, And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Verse 13, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Okay, so these religious leaders, they decide to send these two groups of guys, and we'll get into that in a second, who these are, but the the Pharisees and the Herodians. And what's interesting, here is in verse 15. I want to highlight that, that, but knowing their hypocrisy, right? These two groups, they come to Jesus with these kind of like false niceties. They're really polite, but we know they're, they're set a trap. And they call him teacher. We, we know you're true, right? We know you don't care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances and you truly teach the word of God, right? But Jesus, his immediate response knowing their hypocrisy as he says why put me to the test the truth is is that some of you in here tonight are coming in the same way that those guys came to Jesus right you're coming in here and maybe no one can see it not the person that brought you not any of the people up here you're really really good at hiding it maybe you're coming in with a pretense oh if I can just catch Jesus in this one thing I don't have to accept him Right? Or maybe you're really, really good at hiding it. Your, your hypocrisy is hidden. You, you, you play the church card. You, you sit in the pew. You sing the songs. You go to the Bible studies. You even go to the D groups. And you're, you, you're hidden well. But it doesn't matter if you're hidden from the people around you because in verse 15, knowing their hypocrisy, right? Jesus sees right beyond these guys' questions to the heart of their motive. And he goes on, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius to let me look at it. So who are these guys? Who are the Pharisees and the Herodians? So the Pharisees, we've encountered them a whole lot throughout um, our study in Mark. The Pharisees were kind of like ultra-conservative Jewish guys, right? They, the guys that held the Old Testament in super high esteem, especially the legal parts, and uh, they kept it to the letter, shamed those who didn't, very, very what we would call legalistic. 
Um, And then the Herodians, on the other hand, were the guys that wanted to keep Herod in power. They were kind of like the big government supporters, right? That they, they wanted to keep Herod in power because Herod wasn't really a Jew. He was just a puppet king set up by Rome. So if they could keep him in power and keep Rome happy, Rome would stay off of the Jews' back. So Jesus has these two completely different political ideologies that converge on him, right? It seems like that's the only place that these ideologies really do converge is on Jesus. Same thing happens today, right? The right, the left, conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat, everybody wants to try to squeeze Jesus into this box, right, and make him fit. And if he doesn't fit, move on to the next one. We'll find a new king. They came to trap him in his talk. They asked him this question, right? It's really interesting because the question they would, both groups would have been expecting completely different answers and probably would have responded completely differently. They ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? All right, so to the, to the Pharisees, if Jesus had said no, they would have been like, this is great, right? This guy's coming. He's going to overthrow Rome, telling us not to pay our taxes. Wonderful. If he had said no, the Herodians would have thought, oh, this is an insurrectionist. We got to get him out of here immediately, right? Or he's going to lead the Jews against us. If he had said yes, the Pharisees would have called him a traitor, not a Jew, right? We don't want anything to do with you. You're telling us to pay our taxes to Rome. Herodians, if he had said yes, oh, this guy's great, right? He's going to really keep the Jews in line and help them pay taxes to us. We like this guy. So this is a loaded question. But I love how Jesus answers. They say, should we pay them or should we not? So Jesus' response is he asks, bring me a coin, a denarius, which would have been like a a little silver coin with um, the inscription, like the actual picture of one of the Caesars on it. And he he says, why put me to the test? Bring me the denarius. Verse 16 through 17, they brought one. He said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Jesus' answer is profound, and it makes the people marvel, and it should make us marvel too. So he looks at the coin, and he's like, whose picture's on this? Who's it belong to? Caesar's. Okay, well then give it back to Caesar. It is Caesar's. Right, the implication there is this coin belongs to the government. Give it back to them. Right? That's Jesus' answer. But, and, and we love to take that part out of context, right? When Christian like business and talking about politics. But then he says, and to God, the things that are God's. Right? So if we follow Jesus' logic, the coin should go back to Caesar because Caesar's picture, his imprint, his image is on it. And to God, the things that are God's. So what's he mean? Well, he's talking about human beings. He's talking about your life, and he's talking about my life. He's talking about their lives. To God's the things that are God's. See, the reality is, Genesis 1, we were all created in God's image. Right? There are things about us as human beings that are not the same as animals and plants and, and other aspects of creation, right? Creativity, passion, love, jealousy, Anger, zeal, right? These are things that 
are inherent to us as humans because we're made in God's image. And so what Jesus is saying is, is if you are made in God's image, like the coin is made in Caesar's image, then you should give yourself back to God. Right? So what's that mean? That means your worship, your obedience, your time, your money, your affection, your heart, everything should go back to God because he is the creator. He's the owner, right? Contrary to what our culture tells us, we are not autonomous. We don't belong to ourselves. We're created in the image of God and we belong to him. And beneath every label, beneath every thing we want to construct our identity on, at the root is that we are created in his image. You are loved by a God who formed you in his likeness. And so if you're hearing that, you're probably thinking, how is that good news? It sounds like Jesus just told me to get to work. Render to God the things that are God's. And maybe you're tempted to leave here tonight and think, man, I'm, I'm going to go out of here and for the next week, I'm really going to render to God the things that are God's. He, he thinks I can't pay him back. I'm going to pay him back a hundredfold, right? I'm, I'm going to... Christians can do it too, right? I'm going to share the gospel with this many people. I'm going to hang out and, and do good things for, for this many people. And, and my bad will outweigh my good. And, and I'll have rendered to God and he'll get his and we'll be square, right? What's scary about that is if we follow kind of what the Herodians were after, right? So the Herodians were trying to catch Jesus in tax evasion, Right? If, if they could get Jesus to say, you don't have to pay your taxes, then they could arrest him and kill him. What is tax evasion? Right? It's, it's when you, you live in a society where the government funnels money into the society. The citizens use it. They pay it back to the government for the well-being of the society. Right? If you don't pay your debt, a debt collector, now the IRS, comes knocking down your door. Right? To get what belongs to them. So if we follow Jesus' logic all the way to the, to the end, what he's saying is, is that the debt that we owe to God is much, 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 much different than that earthly debt. Right? That earthly debt, right, it's finite. It's to a finite society, a finite government. That when you're dead, praise the Lord, your taxes don't follow you. You don't have to pay them anymore. Right? The government doesn't take any more of your paycheck. It's finite. But if we're made in God's image and God is infinite and God is holy, then where's the mark, right? How do we know how much we have to pay back? How do we make ledger balance? We can't. That's the bad news. But here's the good news, the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus, that son who was rejected, thrown outside of the city walls, he could and he did pay the whole debt for you. Right? He perfectly rendered to God everything that belonged to God. Right? All the worship, his whole life was bent towards worshiping and honoring his father, glorifying him in every single aspect without blemish, without fail. But then he died as a debtor, just like you and I should have died, with no debt of his own. 
And that death, the one that we, we talked about from Psalm 118, that God was sovereign over, this didn't take him off guard, atoning payment for your sins. And all you have to do is trust that he's already done that. That's it. I think that some of you tonight, some of us still see God as like this cruel vineyard keeper that's like really distant and only comes around when he wants something or when he's got a demand to make or maybe we kind of like view him through the lens of a parent that was only there like on Christmases. Or he comes back and he's like, here's this list of demands. I need it now or I'll crush you, right? But that's not... God. That's not Christianity, right? Christianity is from, from all other religions because it says that God has declared what he demands of us, right? God demands perfect, total obedience and that we didn't do that. But then instead of crushing us, he comes down and he is crushed for us under his own wrath so that our debt is completely paid off. And that now we can joyfully go out and render to God the things that are God's. We can joyfully obey with a debt-free slate. Not out of compulsion, but out of joy and out of gratitude. Your whole being, just like it was meant to, rendered back to God because he's paid your debt. Not to get him to pay your debt. Colossians 2 says it like this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Your debt really can be paid. So then the last section, verses 18 through 27. And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died left no offspring. And the second took her and died leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. So this is another gotcha question. Right? This, this new group, the Sadducees, right? they're even identified here as those who say there is no resurrection. So they were kind of the guys that like, they were real big on first five books of the Bible, not so much on the divine and the resurrection and angels and that stuff. So they come to Jesus and they say, we got this question, right? The Moses, the Old Testament, commanded that if a, if a man dies, his brother has to step in and, and raise kids with his wife. So our problem is, is that we know this guy's got seven brothers First brother died, second brother died, third brother died, all the way down. None of them have been able to produce a child. In the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Who's going to be responsible for her? Boom, gotcha, Jesus. But Jesus says to them, I love his response in verse 24, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. 
So Jesus goes right to, he diagnoses their two problems, right? The first is that they don't know the scripture, and the second is that they don't know the power of God. I think kind of a practical implication we can make on the surface of, of Jesus' rebuttal for the, because you know neither the scriptures, is, is know your Bible, right? It should probably be a rule of thumb that before you start jumping to conclusions and abandoning the faith and spiraling into a, 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 a nervous breakdown because you found something in the Bible that kind of rubs you wrong is that maybe you should read the rest of the Bible, right? You should study it. You should soak it. You should meditate in it. He also says they don't know the power of God, right? These guys didn't believe that God was actually capable of raising the dead. That's the heart of their question. They're not really asking about this wife, wife and kids question. They're, they're trying to trap Jesus and we got you. There's no resurrection of the dead, right? But they clearly, they don't know the power of God. They don't know that the, the one who formed everything out of nothing, right, who keeps the earth pinning, spinning perfectly on its axis, who in the Old Testament could make a donkey talk and have a guy survive in a fish, they don't believe that, that that God logically could raise the dead. That's their problem. So then Jesus kind of addresses this a little bit farther. He plays along for a second. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So he kind of addresses the marriage uh, problem with a little bit of resurrection thrown in. And he, he's, he's, when they're dead, they don't, they don't need to be married because they're like angels in heaven. Uh, my wife and I just got married this past summer, um, and marriage is some of the greatest earthly joy. And it makes me honestly kind of sad whenever I read stuff like this that says you won't be married in heaven, All right, It's going to be kind of a bummer. But if we understand marriage in its proper context, right, marriage becomes kind of a preparation for what's actually coming, the full picture. He says, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. We could unpack this for probably a couple hours. We don't have time, but I think the Apostle Paul in uh, Ephesians 5.32 kind of explains this um, a little bit. So he's talking about marriage. And he's talking about this picture of a husband and a wife, and he's the, the, the Genesis kind of um, institution of marriage that a man should leave his wife. It says, this mystery is profound, marriage, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. So he's talking about man and wife joined together. It's supposed to be this picture of Christ, the groom, lovingly laying his life down for his bride and his bride lovingly and joyfully following and submitting after him. So Jesus' point is that when we are in heaven, we won't need to be married, right? If these guys are so concerned about it, it's, it's not going to be a thing because we'll have the full picture, right? The, the realization the, we'll, we'll be with Christ, the thing that marriage was pointing to the whole time. Then he says, but are like angels in heaven? Honestly, I tried to study that. I don't really know what that means. We're like angels in heaven because every time you see an angel in the Bible, they either sound terrifying or people freak out when they see them. So, uh, but, but I think a conclusion we can probably draw is that the angels are continually worshiping God. They're continually, they, they have, they don't have sin because they're not human beings. They have 
access to the throne. Right? I think that's what Jesus is getting at there, that in heaven we won't need marriage because we'll be like the angels in the sense that we'll have unlimited access to our perfect groom. And then Jesus jumps beyond their trick question to the heart of what they really believe about the resurrection. He says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? So he's referring to the Exodus story where Moses talked to God through a burning bush. How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. I love his response. But what's the point Jesus is trying to get at? He uses the story of Moses that the Sadducees, right, they loved the Torah. They would have been familiar with, but they completely overlooked this. When God is speaking to Moses, he says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Right? Ongoing. I am. I am continuing to be the God. These guys when Moses would have been spoken to them, were gone. They were no longer on the earth. Abraham, gone. Isaac, gone. Jacob, gone. But what God says to him is that I am still their God, which implies that they're still alive. They are still with God. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And I think this is super pertinent for like the past 2020 we've had, right? When COVID and just riots and violence and all of this stuff has just washed over us on TV and the news and our lives it's just constantly in our minds this fear of death right? and I've seen a lot of people who are terrified of death in an unhealthy way for a Christian for somebody who has entrusted their life to Christ whose debt has been paid right Death is just like one step closer to being with him forever. It's not that we take this like leap in the dark out into the big nothing and hope something catches us. It's that we just fall right on into the arms of our father forever. God will still be your God when you're dead. You'll still be alive You'll be resurrected as Christ was resurrected if you embrace Christ. So as the band comes back up, I just want to close with this final thought from John eleven twenty five. 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he goes on to say, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So the question for us tonight is, is, do you believe that? Right? And not only do you believe that in like an intellectual knowledge kind of way, but have you embraced Jesus? Right? Or, or have you embraced hopelessness and destruction? Or have you embraced the one who has rescued you from all of your sins and who offers you resurrection?